Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 557 for the 27th of August, 2017. This week, Microsoft Word and Outlook can be combined to create an email merge, but there's not a lot of functionality. A plug-in from Russia helps greatly. One of the largest backup providers for home users and small businesses is dropping its home product, so prices will be going up. Why that's not all bad. In short circuits, this week I discovered what is apparently a common Windows problem that I'd never encountered before. The explanation includes information you can use when it happens to you. Researchers at New York University have come up with a clever way to foil shoulder servers who try to see your password or PIN. And in spare parts, only on the website, how about a little flight information with your weather forecast? The weather company plans to provide that. Website protection company SiteLock has acquired a Dutch firm that automatically applies patches to common content management systems. GoDaddy adds a new level of security to websites it hosts. And Super Microcomputer is about to release gigantic storage devices in tiny packages. Oh, and by the way, today's program is being prepared on a Goldilocks day. Not too hot, not too cold. So the window is open. If you hear a little background noise from time to time, well, that's why. Anybody who needs to send the same information by email to several people has several choices. One of those choices involves using Outlook's Mail Merge feature, which actually lives in Microsoft Word. There are many opportunities for improvement. First, let's consider the options when you need to send identical information to a lot of people. The easiest option is nothing more than using the copy or blind copy function of your email program. Depending on the company that provides email transmission services, this will work for groups up to perhaps several hundred. Most internet service providers and hosting providers cap the number of messages that can be sent per hour or per day. This is done to make standard email accounts unpalatable to spammers, but it can get in the way of a user's legitimate need to occasionally send a large number of messages. The best option when you need to send the same information to hundreds or thousands of people at the same time is a mailing service such as the one used for the weekly TechBiter newsletter, MailChimp. The service allows users to send up to 12,000 messages per month to a total of 2,000 subscribers for free. If you have more, you'll need to subscribe. If you need to send attachments, most of the mailing services will allow something small, an embedded 100K image file, for example, but they won't allow a multi-megabyte PDF document. Instead, you'll need to provide a link in the message to a file that has been uploaded to a public server. Another option involves using Microsoft Word's merge function to create email messages. This allows each message to be personalized with the recipient's name and other information in the message. There's still the message limitation set by your internet service provider. 
And if you want to include an attachment, you'll quickly learn that it is not possible in any way, at least not without a little help from your friends. Your friends, in this case, are in Russia, although they do have a North American office in Vancouver, British Columbia. Here's some useless but possibly interesting information. The company is located in Kaliningrad on the Pergolia River, near where it empties into the Baltic Sea. Following the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Kaliningrad Oblast became an exclave, part of Russia, but geographically separated from Russia. Poland is on the southern border, Lithuania is on the north and east, the Baltic Sea is on the west. Our friends have a name, it's Mappy Lab, and they have concentrated for many years on the development of software that works with Microsoft Exchange Server, Microsoft Outlook, and Microsoft Office. One of their products is called the Mail Merge Toolkit. It's an add-in for Microsoft Office that extends the built-in Mail Merge capabilities of Outlook, Word, and Publisher. Word is capable of creating a Mail Merge that includes personalized information in the message, but not in the subject line. One of the best ways to get a recipient's attention is to include their name in the subject line. Mail Merge Toolkit does this. Additionally, if you want to include an attachment with your email merge, the plugin makes that possible too, and then it makes things even better by allowing the included attachment to be a specific attachment per recipient. Now, granted, this isn't something that everybody needs, but consider this situation. Let's say that you need to create a series of reports each month that will be sent to coworkers. In this situation, you have 50 coworkers and there are 10 reports. Each user should receive a single report that is relevant to their department. Not all users will receive a report every month. Wow, that sounds like a lot of work if you have to do it manually. Well, the process begins in Excel where you create a list that includes the essential information. Creating the list and setting up the merge in Word is well known and widely documented, so I'm going to be skipping most of that. My Excel document, the one you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website, has columns for the user's first name, last name, phone number, email address, a mailing indicator, and the attachment name. The names, phone numbers, and email addresses were all randomly generated, but you'll notice on the TechBiter Worldwide website that I have obscured the phone numbers and email addresses. That's because some of them could, inadvertently, be real. The spreadsheet may contain any number of columns, whatever needs to be included in the merged messages. Next, you set up the merge document in Word. After linking the Excel file to the Word document, you'll have an opportunity to filter the records. This is a merge function within Word that allows selection of records based on certain criteria. In my case, I decided to send messages only when the Send field contains the word True. After doing that, you'll create the message. Any number of mail merge fields may be included in the message. And if you need, you can include the same merge field more than once. Then the process diverges from the standard Microsoft Word workflow. Instead of selecting electronic mail, you'll select the Mail Merge Toolkit. The primary differences here are that you'll be offered an opportunity to add merge fields to the subject line, and there's an option for attachments. The attachments can be the same for all documents if that's what you need, and if that's your choice, you'll select a file name. The more powerful function, though, is the ability to choose a specific attachment for each message based on a value in the Excel document. 
If that's what you want to do, you'll specify a field name. I've cleverly named this field attach. So then I ran the merge and, oh, something went wrong. Check out the TechBiter Worldwide website. You'll see an error message there. So what went wrong? Two things, actually. First, one of the attachments is missing. The file just isn't there. Mail Merge Toolkit provides four options in this case. They are ignore the problem with this message, ignore it for all messages, halt the process, or skip messages that don't have attachments. So choose what you want to do there and go on. Having cleared that error, I saw a message from Outlook asking for access to the certificate I use for digitally signing messages. It seems to be a bug with the plug-in. When the certificate is active, the process fails. This is an easy fix, but it's not entirely satisfactory. The certificate must be disabled when the plug-in is active. After sending the messages, you'll just want to reactivate the certificate. I have reported that bug to Mappy Lab. Perhaps they'll fix it in a future release. But to continue with the mail merge, it completes, attaches the appropriate file, and sends the messages. Of the 50 addresses on my test list, 33 were marked as eligible to send, and that's the number of messages that were sent. The bottom line for Mappy Lab's mail merge toolkit, four cats. When you need more than a basic email merge, this is a great choice. If not for the incompatibility with the certificate used to digitally sign messages, Mail Merge Toolkit would easily be a 5-cat application. It's easy to use, it adds powerful functionality to Microsoft Outlook, and you'll find additional details on the Mappy Lab website. There's a link, of course, from the TechBiter Worldwide website. CrashPlan is getting out of the home backup business a little more than a year from now to concentrate solely on the small office, home office market. That doesn't mean that home users will have to stop using the backup service, but it does mean they'll have to pay more. I'm really happy that I'm going to have to pay more for this service. That's something nobody ever, ever says. But some price increases are more palatable than others, and this one, I think, is in that category. The price will double to $120 a year, but, I mean, that's still just $10 a month. How much is data security worth to you? It's worth that much to me. CrashPlan is just one part of my multi-part backup system. CrashPlan is the name of the backup service from Code42. The company protects more than 47,000 organizations worldwide, the Minneapolis company says that it will honor all crash plan for home subscriptions for the duration of the subscription and will help consumer customers transition. Subscriptions will also be extended by two months. Users can migrate to the small office home office service at no additional charge for the remainder of the term. After that, there is a 75% discount for the first year on crash plan for small business. The Code42 blog this week filled up with lots of negative reactions. That's probably to be expected whenever anything changes, particularly when that change also involves a price increase. One option that Code42 is offering crash plan home users is moving their backup to Carbonite. Many of the commenters on the blog are former Carbonite users, as am I. 
When I left Carbonite several years ago, it was primarily because of exceedingly poor response from support. Perhaps that has changed, but those who used Carbonite in the past seem to be disinclined to use it again. There are other options, of course. Acronis offers an online backup option in addition to its ability to create local backups and clone hard drives. In fact, I use Acronis TrueImage to maintain an image copy of my boot drive. TrueImage Premium costs $100 a year, but it limits online backup to just one terabyte. This whole thing probably isn't a decision guided solely by Code 42. Information from the company says that it is, and I quote here, backed by Axel Partners, JMI Equity, NEA, and Split Rock Partners. These are four venture capital firms, so you can guess who's calling the shots. As always, follow the money. Code 42 says that it has experienced 50% year-over-year recurring business revenue growth for the past three years and attributes much of that to its plans for businesses. The small business, education, and enterprise markets have proven to be significant growth areas for the company, according to their news release. But despite who's calling the shots and why, is it a bad deal for users? Well, under terms of the service extension and a year's worth of business class service at a 75% discount, which actually makes it less expensive than the home version, users will have two years to make a final decision. And I think that's worth pointing out to those who have written on the Code 42 blog that this is absolutely devastating, often with many exclamation points. The company says the needs of home users differ from those of business users, but it doesn't really explain how. After all, a lost file is a lost file, whether you're a home or business user, and the threats are similar regardless. But still, I keep coming back to the fact that for most users, after two years, the price of the service will double. But that doubling moves the cost from $5 a month to $10 a month. What can you buy for $10 these days? A single movie ticket, perhaps? Or dinner for two at Wendy's? Maybe six bottles of a good beer? How about four gallons of gasoline? I'd hardly put that in the devastating category. In short circuits, let's correct a problem that should never have existed in the first place. If you've ever clicked on the speaker icon in the notification area so that you can increase or decrease the volume and you see no response, well, you're not alone. There's a workaround for this problem, but as I said, it's a problem that shouldn't exist in the first place. The notification area of the task panel displays a speaker item. Right-click it and you should be offered options to open the volume mixer, specify recording or playback devices, choose the sounds that are played when an event occurs, and troubleshoot sound problems. Left-click and you should see a volume control. What if you left-click and nothing happens, and then you right-click and nothing happens? Well, I started seeing this behavior about a week ago, and researching the problem revealed that it is not isolated. Lots of people seem to have seen this problem. The recommendations for resolving the problem include reinstalling Windows. Well, when you research something on the web, you get lots of goofy suggestions. Reinstalling Windows is not required, and it'd be a really bad solution. 
Instead, I offer thanks to Andy Lee, who posted a clear, concise, and easy solution on the Microsoft Community Forum website. Andy's final words in that post are, Note to Microsoft, fix it. Well, Microsoft hasn't fixed it, at least not yet. So you can fix the problem by terminating Microsoft's File Explorer and restarting it. The process is as simple as it is unnecessary. And we can only hope that Microsoft will follow Lee's recommendation to fix it. So here's the solution. Right-click on the taskbar, open the Task Manager, then click on the Details tab and sort the list by name. Select Explorer.exe in the list and click End Task. Now this next step is really important. Stay in Task Manager. While you're still there, click File, Run a New Task. Type Explorer.exe and press OK. The volume control will now operate as expected, and I echo Andy Lee's recommendation to Microsoft, come on guys, fix it. So here's how this fix works. When you use the Task Manager to close the Windows Explorer, you have constructively forced it to crash. If you make the mistake of closing the Task Manager before performing the next step, you'll have no way to access the Start menu, to run applications, or to shut the computer down. Creating a new Explorer task forces Windows to refresh the icons in the taskbar and notification area. The speaker icon that had stopped working will be replaced with a functioning version. Note that if you have any applications that place icons in the notification area when they start, you may need to restart them too to get the icons back. Really, this is the kind of correction that nobody should need to deal with. But at least it's easy. Maybe you've used an ATM and noticed somebody standing uncomfortably close to you, or maybe you didn't notice. If you used a drive-up ATM, you could still be observed by a well-placed camera. This is called shoulder surfing, and it's yet another way that crooks can obtain information that you don't want them to have. Researchers at New York University's Tandon School of Engineering say they've invented something that can eliminate the threat. Computer science and engineering professor Nasser Memon says that they're calling the new technology Illusion Pin. It uses an on-screen keyboard that displays one image to a viewer who's less than three feet away and something else to those who see the screen from a greater distance. The underlying technology blends one image of a keyboard configuration with high spatial frequency and a different keyboard configuration with low spatial frequency. In plain English, that just means the visibility of each image is dependent on the distance from which it is viewed. Memon says the traditional configuration of numbers on a keypad is so familiar that it's possible for an observer to discern a pin or an access code after several viewings of a surveillance video. He points out that the user sees one configuration of numbers, but someone looking from a distance sees a completely different keypad. So all the crook needs to do is view the screen up close and note the configuration of numbers, right? Well, no. Illusion Pin reconfigures the keypad for each authentication or login attempt. The research team performed 84 attempted shoulder surfing attacks on 21 participants, none of which was successful using their new technology. When they attempted 21 shoulder surfing attacks on unprotected phones using the same distance parameters, 
all 21 attacks were successful. There are no reliable statistics on the prevalence of shoulder surfing attacks, but a 2016 study conducted by the team found that 73% of mobile device users surveyed reported that they had observed somebody else's PIN, although not necessarily with any malicious intent. PIN authentication is popular because PINs are easy to use and remember. The research team plans to further refine Illusion PIN with the goal of commercializing the technology. An article about the technology called Illusion Pin Shoulder Surfing Resistant Authentication Using Hybrid Images was published by the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers. You'll find a link on the TechFighter Worldwide website. And while you're there, check out Spare Parts. It's only on the website. This week, how about a little flight information with your weather forecast? The weather company plans to provide that. Website protection company SiteLock has acquired a Dutch firm that automatically applies patches to common content management systems. GoDaddy adds a new level of security to websites it hosts. And Super Microcomputer is about to release gigantic storage devices in tiny packages. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website www.techbiter.com and if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.